Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. The Dive, going deeper into the world of sport with Jared Kimber and John Norman on Talk Sport. You're listening to The Dive on Talk Sport. Every show, we take a long look at one subject in sport. This week, we're looking at the issue of doping in football. We're living in an era of unparalleled riches when it comes to professional sport. Never before has there been more reason to cheat. And when it comes to sports like cycling and athletics, the scourge of blood doping has diminished the sport in the eyes of many. But why, when so many players and teams have been caught doing exactly the same thing in football, does the sport seem to be untarnished? Why do eggs get thrown at Tour de France dopers, but in football, they get ignored? Is it true footballers don't need to use performance-enhancing drugs? Are the systems in place too strict to allow for cheating? Or are we just blind to what has been going on in Europe for years? So this week, we're asking, does football have a secret drugs problem? Jerry Kimber, how are you doing? Very good. Before I get started, I want to ask you, and the listeners can play at home, I want to ask you a quick question, okay? Go. I'm going to name a sport, and you are going to tell me the first negative thing that comes to your mind. The first negative thing. Yeah. Okay. Awesome. So if I said cycling. Drugs. There we go, right? Cricket. Match fixing. Quite hard physical sports like uh, rugby league union or NFL. Uh, concussion. Athletics. Drugs. Football. FIFA, I suppose, maybe? Uh, or sports washing? FIFA or sports washing? Yep, yep, I'll go with that. Look, if you were to go out into the street right now in London and ask 100 people the same question, when it comes to football, what's the negative thing that comes to mind? I think most people would say the same as you. Actually, I think most people would probably say agents. Yeah. Football agents, FIFA. Sports washing, I think, a little bit now because of Qatar and the World Cup, but yeah. Yeah, sports washing as well. I think very, very few of them would say blood doping. But the thing is, though... You might be right, or they might be right, because in the history of Premier League football, only one person has ever been found guilty of taking a performance-enhancing drug. That's well, he wasn't English. It was Abel Xavier, Portuguese player. He is the only one who's ever been found guilty of taking a performance-enhancing drug isn't in it, the history of the Premier League. Isn't it great that just all the other footballers are just so above board? Do you know who Dr. Efemiano Fuentes is? Yes, because of the many, many times I've been trapped with you on team buses with TalkSport and you've gone on about it. Okay, right. For the listeners out there who weren't on the team bus in Sri Lanka, Dr. Fuentes is a Spanish doctor and he was involved in a really high-profile case in Spain a few years back. Basically, in 2007, his offices got busted and bags of blood, lab equipment, uh, for blood transfusions, anabolic steroids were all seized, okay? Bags of blood. Mm. Now, much of the blood was linked to cycling, and the cycling world were really quick to act. So they banned 50 cyclists immediately, and they named and shamed a host of others, including one of the best cyclists at the time, Jan Ulrich. You said officers as well. And you, I mean, yeah. you said bags of blood. 
multiple and officers multiple. Yeah, and it's key, so well noticed, because Dr Fuentes was never actually charged with blood doping offences. What he was charged with was carrying out unsafe medical procedures because what he was doing wasn't taking place in a surgery or a medical practice. It was taking place in his office. (laughs) And the reason for that is, or the reason he wasn't charged for blood doping is because up until the year 2006, it was actually legal to blood dope in Spain. But once Fuentes is busted, he starts talking. He starts to admit that the bags of blood hadn't just been taken from cyclists. It had also been taken from tennis stars, athletes and footballers. He was quite happy to talk about this. And this is kind of where it all starts getting a little bit weird. Because despite the names of the cyclists being released, the judge refuses to let any of the other information be known. And not only that, this operation takes place in 2007. The trial doesn't take place until 2013, six years later before it comes to court. And that is kind of where I come in, because at the time I was producing the Richard Keys and Andy Gray show on TalkSport. Uh, right, this is from Saturday's newspapers, Andy. The Spanish Great. doctor at the centre of Operation Puerto blood doping trial says Real Madrid owe him money. This is Saturday. <laughs> yeah. Efimiano Fuentes is on trial in the Spanish capital, accused of overseeing a doping operation for cyclists. Uh, but he's also uh, been linked very closely with other clubs. Real Sociedad have admitted mm-hmm. working with him. Uh, leaving court yesterday, this was Friday, Fuentes told Spanish radio that he was interested in collecting uh, on a debt from Real Madrid. When asked if the debt was for medical services rendered to the Spanish League champions, Fuentes responded by saying, I can't answer that. By Sunday, after Real had threatened legal action, he said it was for expenses for attending a court case in France, which Real Madrid won uh, when they went to court head-to-head with a journalist from Le Monde who had uh, alleged uh, misdeed down Mm -hmm. the years. In the Mail on Sundays, Pete Jensen joins us uh, from Barcelona. What what has been reaction in Spain to it? I mean, I think Real Madrid's reaction um, spoke volumes in terms of how furious they were that they they were being implicated in this. He's said since that, uh, you know, he's never given a Real Madrid player so much as an aspirin in his his time as a doctor. Where the case could go on a step further is when these uh, offices were raided, um, police found uh, 200 bags of blood. Now, these are currently in police care. And if after the case, Santa Maria, the the judge, then decides that these should be passed on to the anti-doping authorities for testing, then we find out whose blood it is. And then obviously it goes on a very big step further. Those bags of bloods were deemed initially inadmissible in court, weren't they? But there is a, a list of names on a computer that matches them. Would I be right in saying that? It's within the judge's power, as I say, to pass them on, or, or if there is a list, then to make this list public, um, and then it becomes, um, you know, then it then it magnifies c- completely the story. What of Sociedad, who have already said, yes, we did work with him? Iñaki Badiola, who was the president at the time, is actually not named Fuentes, but said that um, that doping w- was was used. Um, between 2001 and 2007, and that seems to have, uh, have, have quietened down since then, which is rather strange. Fuentes <laughs> has um, has documents with uh, the words RSOC, which which obviously could well be Real Sociedad. Uh, they were uncovered as well in his offices. You're listening to the dive on Talk Sport, and that was a clip taken from the Keys and Gray show back in 2013 during the trial of Dr. Fuentes. And as you heard there. Whilst Dr Fuentes was being linked to some of the biggest football clubs in Spain, Real Madrid denied any involvement. But Real Sociedad 
had already admitted to doping their players in a five-year period leading up to 2006. By the way, Jared, Real Sociedad finished second in 2003 in La Liga. That was their highest league finish in 20 years and they haven't come close to repeating it since. Anyway, finally, you'd imagine this is it. We're getting to the absolute crux of the story here. The stage is set for the rest of the blood to be examined and then revealed, and we're going to find out who else has been visiting the doctor over the years, because we know it's not just the cyclists. It's emerged, actually, in the last sort of half an hour or so, that the judge has refused the use of data taken from Dr. Fuentes' computer, saying it would be a breach of privacy. So I think any hope we had of anything fully emerging uh, seems to have been dashed in the early stages. That's Nick Holt, sports journalist at the Daily Telegraph, also on Keys and Grey back in 2013, convinced there was a possibility for both football and tennis players to be named in the case. There was an interview last night with the the whistleblower in this case, a cyclist called Jesus Manzano, and he, he, he told... Uh, the reporter that um, he saw two well-known Brazilian footballers at uh, Fuentes' clinic and a well-known Spanish international. Now, he, he didn't name names, it's not he. Uh, so we don't know whether he's telling the truth or not. But Fuentes did keep very exact records uh, of payments he received, um, uh, of transfusions he'd administered. Uh, with the evidence is there for the, for the guys the site, in the cycling world who have already been punished. Dave Howman, WADA's t- Director General, he says, we've been banging our heads against a brick wall to get access to the evidence that was gathered. It's not only frustrating and disappointing, but it also means that many athletes uh, who might have been dirty have, have been allowed to compete and get away with this. Well, the original allegation was the government, the government had suppressed evidence. Um, that now falls, that allegation, at the door of the courts, doesn't it? It does, and uh, there have been so many uh, chances for either the courts or the uh, the government to release the evidence and to pass it on to WADA. I mean, this is a case that goes back to 2006. It's not as if uh, they haven't had time to hand it over. So we, we just have to suspect that there has been some sort of, of, of cover-up somewhere along the line by somebody who doesn't want all of this uh, this coming out. You're listening to The Dive on Talk Sport with John Norman and Jarrah Kimber. That was Daily Telegraph sports writer Nick Holt talking with Richard Keyes and Andy Gray in 2013 about the decision by Judge Julia Patricia Santa Maria to not release the names of the athletes whose blood had been found in the fridge of Dr. Fuentes. And two months later, it got even worse. After finding Dr. Fuentes guilty and handing down a one-year suspended sentence, which he successfully overturned three years later, The judge then demanded that not only should the owners of the blood be kept anonymous, the blood itself should be destroyed, as well as uh, the computers and any other documentation relating to the trial. Drugs are just another form of corruption within sport, and they are in. There's nothing that that I've heard so far that surprises me because I've been looking at these sorts of things for so long, and it just keeps happening. And let me tell you a really interesting one. Uh, a few years ago when I was, I was writing a big piece um, about corruption in sport, I found this quote by Dick Pound. So Dick Pound uh, is obviously hugely influential in WADA um, and probably maybe he's probably spoken about uh, drug issues more than anyone else um, ever in sport. And he talked to someone in another sport and he said to this person, you know that your athletes are taking drugs, but you're not testing them and you're allowing this to happen. And the guy said, yes, and obviously we'd rather our athletes don't take drugs, but we also don't want to be the next cycling. And that is essentially the pressure. And one of the problems with cycling, and I'm sure we will come back to this, but one of the problems with cycling is 
it wasn't a billion-dollar sport in the way that some of these other sports are. When you start talking about football uh, and tennis and NFL and those sorts of sports, suddenly you are talking about people with incredible political muscle to get things happen. And this, basically, that just sounds like a cover-up. That, that's all that sounds like. There's no way to, not, to listen to what you've just heard there and not think in your mind that that's a cover-up. Well, you mentioned tennis. Funnily enough, there was a bit of reaction uh, after the trial. Andy Murray, he took to Twitter and said this, Operation Puerto is beyond a joke. Biggest cover-up in sports history. Hashtag cover-up. So is that the end of it? Fast forward seven years, we still don't know the names. Well, the cover-up worked. Of, of the blood <laughs> in, in, the, uh, in the fridge. But it might not be the end of it. Here's Dr. Olivier Robin. He works for WADA. Um, used to work with Dick Pound. And he is explaining that even after all these years, they still have hopes to use the information that they successfully got when they overturned the judge's decision to destroy the blood. So they actually got access to that blood. But because of the statute of limitations, it was too far gone for them to do anything with the information. Certainly not going to, to trials or exposing names but maybe sharing information with the international federations and see what they, can, what they could do on their side. It's been, unfortunately, a very lengthy process. It was not facilitated by the uh, Spanish legal system. We certainly do respect. Certainly this is a case where we would have hoped from the water side that we could have came to conclusions much faster. Uh, we are not quite at the end of it, so this is why I cannot comment any further. So that was Dr. Olivia Robin from the World Anti-Doping Authority. You're listening to The Dive on Talk Sport with John Norman and Jared Kimber. And uh, Dr. Olivia Robin was talking about the identities of those athletes, which I don't know, uh, but we can't uh, find out who they are, but may one day be released. You and I did a special for Talk Sport 2 recently uh, on the Cricket Collective about match fixing. The people who look into match fixing are quite often very clever people. The biggest problem for them is that Essentially, trying to bring all these different countries with all these different laws and basically professional sport is too big and too global for legal systems to handle. And we don't have... What we need is... We need exactly what happened with WADA, but for corruption in sport. And it can't just, it's not just drugs, it's everything. It needs to work out, you know, every, every single sponsor involved in a, in a major sporting event should be put through uh, an anti-corruption um, tribunal. Everything, at every level, every, you know, all the hirings of these people and where, who they worked for before needs to be in a database. It, it shouldn't be up to journalists to, uh, you know, stumble across them. That is where we need to be. And you listen to this and you're saying, I just feel sorry for WADA and I feel sorry for the clean athletes out there as well. You're listening to The Dive on Talk Sport. Coming up, you'll hear testimony from a former professional footballer who is 99% sure he was coerced into taking illegal drugs that could have ended his career. You're listening to The Dive on Talk Sport. The Dive on Talk Sport. You're listening to The Dive on Talk Sport with John Norman and Jared Kimber. So far on the show, you've heard about the trial of Dr. Fuentes, which took place in Spain in 2013, about allegations of a cover-up that meant the sports stars from football, tennis and cycling were never revealed despite tagged bags of blood uncovered in the doctor's fridge. OK, but how does this change the way you look at football? OK, I want to start with France. 
we've spoken about why there seems to be this ambivalence or ignorance to the fact that blood doping might be a problem in football. And you'd be really hard-pressed to find any comments from current managers. But there is one manager who has been consistent and vocal about the need for better drugs testing in football. And he's one of the most successful managers in Premier League football. And he's French. Arsene Wenger. I always was a believer that there's a lot of uh, cheating going on in our game and uh, that we are not strong enough with uh, what happens. Nor with the doping, nor with the corruption of the referees, nor with the match fixing. Sport is full of legends who in fact are cheats. This is what he said at the time of the Dr Fuentes trial. They have found pockets of blood, but they don't even ask to whom that does belong. They're not interested at all. The justice should go deeper. When you look at the functions of this doctor, it is quite scary. He was involved in the Olympic team, football team and cycling team. France hasn't had a Champions League winner since 1993. And that was when Marseille beat AC Milan. And there are many people who think that result should actually be expunged from the record books. The week of the Champions League final, when they were taking on Milan, they didn't want their players to get injured in an important league game, so they nobbled them. They basically paid off a couple of the opposition players. This was then came to light, and they were relegated. Now, managing one of Marseille's biggest rivals at that time, Monaco, was, can you guess? Arsene Wenger. <laughs> First time. <laughs> yeah, you got it. He became Monaco manager in 1987, immediately took them to the title. And then over the next few years, Monaco finished third, third, second, second, and joint second. And every single time, they finished behind Marseille. In 2006, after Wenger had left French football, he said this, We are talking about the worst period French football has been through. It was gangrenous from the inside because of the influence and the methods of Bernard Tappy at Marseille. So who's he? So Bernard Tappy was the man who was imprisoned after the match-fixing saga. He was the chairman at Marseille. He moved into football from guess what sport? Cycling? Yes! Anyway, let's hear a little bit more about Bernard Tappy from someone who played underneath him. Um, in the year 2000, a book was released called My Secret Life. And it chronicled the football career of a striker with an unusual tale. You should definitely read this book. It's brilliant. And that man is former Republic of Ireland striker and current TalkSport presenter, Tony Cascarino. And what makes it even stranger is that the author of that biography is Paul Kimmage. And Paul Kimmage is one of the two journalists who brought Lance Armstrong down. Here's Cass on his time at Marseille. There was a physio called Jacques Bailly playing my, one of my earliest games and Jacques Bailly, I'm seeing everyone having these injections in their back and I'm thinking, what's that? And I said to Jacques, what are they doing? He went, oh, they're having an adrenaline boost. And I went, well, what do you mean? What is an adrenaline boost? That's just a booster. I think, is it legal? Um, no, it's just a booster. I'm not really answering my questions. So I went, okay, he said, well, you can have one and Funny enough, in that particular early game, Bernard Tappy, the president, you imagine the president, rolled up his shirt and had an adrenaline boost, saying it's all okay. And players were having them one after the other. So I've eventually had this adrenaline boost and felt, oh, I feel quite good, but you know, I'm feeling, have I done the right thing here? I'm asking all these questions. And I approached the club doctor and said, Look, I've taken one of them adrenaline boosts, am I okay? And he said, Well, I do the testing. 
So the club doctor at my side done the, done the testing. So I was like, okay, and I'm still really uncertain. But my biggest concern is we played Olympiacos at home in the UEFA Cup. We, we'd go to the hotel for a game on a Wednesday. We'd go to the hotel on a Monday. So we'd train and we'd go straight to a place called Auburn, which is just outside Marseille. And we'd stay in a hotel for two days. And on the Monday night, the physician of um, Tappy came to our hotel and all the players were lined up one by one for injections. And I chose not to. I was like, didn't feel good about it. And I was put under pressure as to why I wasn't going to have an in- injection. And I was, no, I, I just... Who put you under pressure? Mainly Bernard Tappy because he, he was the one that was making the directive. You know, he was at the hotel and was encouraging players to have an injection and nearly to a man, everybody did. Do I know what's in it? No. Could I prove it? No. But would I have grave concerns? Absolutely. I felt it was pretty obvious that football had a problem, but somehow, whether it was the finances of football, could seem to brush it under the carpet far more easier than other sports. So you take the injection, either before this Olympiacos game or whatever game. Give me an idea of how it improves Tony Cascarino as a footballer. Well, I'd worked incredibly hard that pre-season and done a lot of hard training, got myself to the lightest I'd been for a long time. So I was probably two or three kilos lighter. So I felt great. I trained as hard as I'd ever done in football at 31, 32. Did I feel good? Yeah, I did. Could I put it down to uh, what was my adrenaline boost? Uh, I don't know, John. It's a really hard one to answer. I don't remember thinking, I feel incredible. That was so different. No, I didn't. I felt good anyway, but the adrenaline boost, I did keep going and going and going. And some people commentate about my running ability after games. I said, cool, we never knew you were such a good athlete. And I, and I sort of waver back. My, my mind goes to a time of, did it have a big impact? Mm, I'm not sure. But I was certainly very suspicious of what was happening. You know, you can look at someone's eyes sometimes without them opening their mouth and actually saying something that we all sort of knew that it wasn't quite right. But we were under pressure from an owner who wanted to win at any cost. You know, Marseille was a, oh, is a big football club. And I think that win at all cost mentality because of the benefits, and it norm- normally was financially, was the price you paid. I really can't say 100% that we were doing something illegal because I just didn't know. So that was former Republic of Ireland striker Tony Cascarino talking about his experiences at Marseille in 1994. And you are listening to The Dive on TalkSport. I actually went to a couple of doctors and went to WADA and asked them, do you know what this injection was? And they said, no, it could have been completely legal. You just don't know. It could have been a big show by Bernard Tappy. A placebo effect. We just don't know. And this is part of the problem. But there are other situations in and around French football which suggests that there was a culture of taking substances from doctors without really knowing what was going on. Looked at France, we've looked at Spain. Now let's look at Italy. Please. 1998. Roma coach Zedanak Zeman, in an interview with an Italian football newspaper, said Italian football needed to come out of the pharmacy. And he claimed of underhand practices at Juventus. Two years later, Juventus went on trial accused of sporting fraud for having won matches and trophies from 1994 through to 1998. Here's sports journalist and Italian football expert Nicky Bandini to explain. When authorities raided Juventus' um, 
medical facility, they found an extraordinary number of uh, prescription drugs there, um, something like 300 or, or a bit less than that, which were seemingly being given to players without what you would think of as a, as a typical medical reason. We're talking about heart drugs, antidepressants, um, drugs that they didn't have prescriptions for, they were giving to players. But nevertheless, and this you know, really is an important point to stress because this is what comes out in the trial, they were not banned. Yes, perhaps they were looking for some sort of edge, but they were not doing it in a way that was outside the rules. They were perhaps testing the rules, but they weren't going outside of them. So just as an example of these and how weird it gets, there was a drug called Samir, which is a powerful antidepressant used by 23 of the players, none of whom had noted any signs of depression. Here's Nikki again. The court absolved the club in essence, but punished the doctor, Ricardo Agricola, in its original 2000 and, sorry, 2004 judgment. He, he was initially sentenced to a sentence of just shy of two years, but that in turn was also overturned on appeal. So effectively, in the long run of this, um, of this case, Juventus were absolved, except that in 2007, at the highest court, uh, the judges found that Juventus had been guilty of using, again, legal prescription drugs, but in a way they were not intended for, effectively to alter the outcome of a sporting competition in a way that was not intended. So that judgment was made in 2007. However, it was just, just, just conveniently outside the um, statute of limitations. So no punishment was handed down. So in the end, even that was a void judgment. That was Italian football expert Nicky Bandini. And whilst Juventus weren't found guilty of giving players performance-enhancing drugs, individual players were. In 2001, Juventus player Edgar Davids became the eighth Serie A player that year to test positive for Nandrolone. And let's not just talk Juventus's problem. Yap Stam, he tested positive for Nandrolone playing in Italy. For Lazio. As fans, we think about performance-enhancing drugs as something is on a list and you shouldn't take it. What has been going on, I would say probably since the mid-90s, is that sports scientists, sports doctors, and I'm talking about the nefarious ones, have gone, what can we do that is not yet on the list? Uh, human growth hormone, you know, athletes around the world were using that for a long time before WADA put it on the list. Now, we now see that as one of the worst things that you can take in sports. But that wasn't on the list. So people were taking that legally for a long time. You see it with asthma medication for cyclists and all these different things that you've just talked about there. Are you ready for the really dark bit? 2002, former Genoa defender Gianluca Signorini died of Lou Gehrig's disease. He was 42. His widow approached a magistrate in Turin who then started probing the unusually high incidence of cancer, leukaemia and nervous system illnesses in players for top clubs in Italy. Six years later, the wife of Italian midfielder Bruno Patrice unsuccessfully tried to prove her husband's death from cancer at 39 was due to medical practices during his playing days. Then in 2009, an Italian MEP submitted a written question to the European Parliament asking the question whether Lou Gehrig's disease, which is a progressive degenerative disease of the nervous system, should be regarded as a genuine occupational disease among footballers. And the reason? Statistically, you are 24 times more likely to get it. Now, why is that? Research was done in Washington, and there are four possible reasons that they came up with. One, repeated trauma to the limbs and head. Okay, that makes yep. sense. And actually, there are no cases of Lou Gehrig's disease in goalkeepers. Two, 
contact with pesticides and herbicides on a sports field. Which is going to be a big issue in the next 10 to 15 years. You heard it here first. Three, drug abuse. Footballers take much higher doses of anti-inflammatories. Four, blood doping. Excessive levels of androgens circulating in the blood as a result of taking hormones or anabolic steroids. Go and have a look at the East German athletes. You only have to look at not only the effects that it had on the East German athletes themselves, but the effects that it had on their kids. Okay, so the first World Cup I can ever remember taking place was Spain, 1982. I was only interested in England at the time. But there was also another big story going on in that World Cup, and that team was Algeria. They beat West Germany 2-1, and in Algerian football, that is still seen as their greatest ever moment. What isn't remembered or mentioned so much is the fact that since that tournament, two of their players, Jamal Menad and Mohamed Chaib, claimed that their Russian coach gave them illegal pills prior to the World Cup. Now, Jamal Manad and Mohamed Chaib are two of the eight players from that Algerian squad who have gone on to father disabled children. This, this is what happens. When you want to win at all costs, the costs in this specific case are these children aren't able to live able-bodied lives because of win at all costs from one coach. It's very rarely in those sorts of situations the athlete doesn't even know it. As Tony was saying earlier, they don't even know what they're taking. They don't know what the long-term effects of this is going to be. Still to come on The Dive, you will hear why and how it's far simpler to get away with blood doping in football than it is at the Olympics. You're listening to The Dive on TalkSport. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to monday.com. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burroughs Memorial Day sale at burrowcom slash ACAST. That's burrowcom slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. The Dive with John Norman. You're listening to The Dive on Talk Sport. This week, we're asking why more questions aren't asked about blood doping in football. Jared, there's a belief in football that blood doping isn't a problem because it's a sport that relies on technical skill and speed of thought rather than endurance or power. 
And beliefs like that aren't helped by statements like this one. From the legendary Bayern Munich club doctor, Hans Willem Müller-Wolfhart, who said in 2018, it would make no sense to bulk up in football, the muscles would become too heavy, they'd lose elasticity. If a player were to take stimulants, his battery would be empty after that and he would experience a drop in performance in the following match. It's rubbish. It is rubbish. Here's a question I put to Wada's Dr. Olivier Ruban. Intellectual performance or physical performance of any sort can be improved by, by drugs. So I, certainly my opinion in my position at WADA is that there is no sport, including football or any other sport, that would not benefit uh, with doping. So that's, that's a principle that we should all have in mind and we shouldn't be naive to say that, that uh, football or any other sport would be immune to doping. So that was Dr. Olivia Robin from WADA and you're listening to The Dive on Talk Sports. There is no sport that you cannot find a drug on the ban list or not on the ban list that cannot help an athlete at one stage or another. When I hear that a sport doesn't have any, any positive tests or a country doesn't have any pos- positive tests, I actually think that there's a way bigger problem there than there is when I hear of a country regularly um, finding people guilty. In 2016, uh, Wilder's former do- president, Dick Pound, said football is not doing enough when it comes to doping. There's a huge amount of self-denial. The testing system works off what are called registered testing pools. In athletics, once you reach a certain level, you get put on the list because you're that good and then you're tested. About three or four years ago, we looked at the FIFA list. He was saying this uh, four years ago. The world's largest sport. Do you know how many registered athletes they had on their list covering the whole world? Ten. (laughs) What? (laughs) So there's a double standard between individual sports where there are immediate consequences and team sports where there are not. Um, The FIFA testing protocols mean you can test two players on a team, drawn at random, not targeted. If one person tests positive, nothing happens. If two, then and only can you target test. Now, what that means is... Unlike in an individual sport, if a gold medalist is found guilty of taking Nandrolone, he or she will be banned, right? And the record expunged from the system, a la uh, Jan Zorik. But in team sport, that isn't the case. If a player on a team tests positive for a banned drug, the team themselves don't get punished unless two of them are caught doing the same thing. And this exact situation happened recently in a UEFA competition. Now, can you guess which French football manager was overseeing the team that was on the wrong end of this situation? Was it Arsene Wenger? Yes. So in 2014, Arsenal played and lost to Dinamo Zagreb in the UEFA Champions League. After the game, Zagreb midfielder Ariane Ademi tested positive for Nandrolone. He played the entire game, right? He was banned for four years, which he reduced to two years on appeal. But the result stood. Let's hear what Wenger had to say at the time. It's a surprising rule. UEFA applies the rule that is planned, but uh, I personally don't agree with the rule because you cannot say, OK, they had the dope players and the result stands. That means you accept basically doping. But it is the rule and we accept that and we have to look at ourselves and uh, deal with our own performance. You're listening to the Dive on Talk Sport. That was former Arsenal manager Arsene Wenger. Some female Kenyan runner gets done for, for drugs in her system eight years after she's won her gold medal or her bronze medal and it's taken away, right? Houston Astros in Major League Baseball were caught cheating 
They've let their manager, their general manager, both been fired. They've admitted that they cheated. They didn't lose their World Series title. If the team is too powerful, we just wash our hands and whatever. Some random runner that we've never heard of is losing their medals over and over again. Teams are getting away with cheating over and over again. It is ridiculous what we allow teams to do. Let's hear more from Dr. Olivia Raban. I put a hypothetical question to him. A side wins the World Cup final, and afterwards, the player who scored the winning goal tests positive for a performance-enhancing drug. Would the team be stripped of the trophy? Not that I'm aware of. It will be up to the football authorities as part of the result management process to decide whether this athlete had such an influence on the game, as you said, that it could potentially disqualify the team. So that would be up to them. That was Dr. Olivia Robin from WADA, and you're listening to The Dive. Take a listen to this. This is a commentary from the final of the men's 100 metres race at the 2017 World Athletic Championships in London. For one last time, Usain Bolt settles in his blocks. Well, it's a clean start. It's a good start by Coleman. The Americans flying in lane number five. But on the outside in lane number eight... Unofficially 9.94 seconds. Well, was it Gatlin in lane number eight? The crowd drops. Justin Gatlin with a time of 9.92 seconds is the world champion here in London. So that was Justin Gatlin winning the men's 100 metres final at the World Athletic Championships in 2017. And you can hear the immediate moment that the crowd realise it's Gatlin who's won because it's when the booing starts. A man who te- twice tested positive for performance-enhancing drugs, the arch-villain of the piece had beaten the hero, Usain Bolt, in what turned out to be his final ever competitive race. Now, later in that day, Steve Cram and Michael Johnson argued on national television about the treatment handed out to Gatlin. Steve Cram saying that while it was wrong that Gatlin symbolised all that was bad, but he was still angry with Gatlin and he defended the booing of the athlete. Michael Johnson argued that it was completely unfair for all the ills of blood doping to be heaped on one man's shoulders. I found it fascinating because it's not one I've ever heard UK football pundits talk about. When do you ever hear the crowd booing? When do you ever hear pundits discussing the fact that Mm. international footballers have tested positive why does it not diminish the achievements and results of players like Edgar David, Yap Stam, Christoph Dugary, and all the others that have tested positive for Nandrolone? We never, ever talk about it. We never take it away from the achievement of the player, and we never cast questions on the teams that they played for. It seems to be like cheating across the board in team sports. We don't see teams as, as an entity in some ways, and we just sort of move on. Maybe we would talk about it more if there were more English players involved. Maybe if there were English players now speaking out because they were wondering exactly what it was that they were putting in their bodies. Ones who now look back at some of the advice they received and not only question the morality, but also the legality. The Dive with Jared Kimber and John Norman. You're listening to The Dive on Talk Sport with John Norman and Jared Kimber. This week we're asking whether football has a secret drugs problem. You've heard about some startling cases across Europe over the last two or three decades, but in England, only one footballer has ever been banned for taking a performance-enhancing drugs. With players all over the continent falling foul of the authorities, why is this? Is football in England as clean as it appears? Let's hear from Danny Mills. 
Former Leeds fullback who enjoyed a 14-year career as a professional who played in the Premier League and also for England at the 2002 World Cup. Now, he's spoken about the carefree nature that doctors and managers had at that time to prescription drugs during his time as a player and the risks footballers took to make it out on the field week in, week out. At the end of my career, um, I, I'd been injured for, for a while. I, I'd had two knee operations. I'd been to the States uh, and was really struggling. Uh, and I was sat in, the, sat in the medical facility in the United States one day uh, and the guy came in. Um, that was at the time it was from I think it was California, but they had a mass rollout of PRP injections. So PRP or platelet-rich plasma is otherwise known as blood spinning. Blood is taken out of the body, the platelets concentrated in a centrifuge, and then put back into the body to accelerate the healing process. Illegal when Danny was playing, but taken off Wada's prohibited list in 2011. They were injecting people all the time, doing PRP, no bother. So this guy came in to, to sell his PRP sort of injections, and he said, oh, why don't you just have a load of these? You take these for your knee. It'd be great. I said, I'd love to, but I can't. And I knew it, it wasn't allowed. You know, you, you can't do that um, in, in England. And he said, well, it'll help you. You know, it will be, be great for you. I was like, why, why can't I have this? This is not me trying to flout the system to try and enhance my performance. This is me trying to get over a career-threatening injury. And actually, I want to get back to walking and running properly, not necessarily, you know, top-level professional football. So I came back to England uh, and made some inquiries, and everyone was like, well, no, it's illegal. You can't have PRP injections. You can go and see Muller Wolfhart and have the calf serum stuff. It's not quite as good because it's not your own blood. And in the end, I, I looked to it, and I, and I, I won't name names, but I spoke to some high-profile physios and medical people, and I was given the option that if I really wanted PRP injections, that I could go to Spain. Uh, and I was told, go and see this guy. He will do it for you. And unless somebody walks in with a camera at that moment when you're having you know, the, the, the treatment done, it's untraceable uh, and you will be fine. This was only for PRP. This wasn't anything relatively major. So clearly it had been happening. It had been going on. So this is a professional giving you the green light and the wherefore to go and get what would have been an illegal performance enhancing procedure done whilst playing in the Premier League. I guess the issue was it wasn't illegal in Spain. It wasn't illegal in America. So there was this huge grey area. It was illegal to get it done in England, but it wasn't illegal to get it done in those countries. So there was this sort of grey area. Well, hang on, if you've had it done in that country, have you done wrong? You know what sport's like? It will always find a loophole. It will always find a grey area. I, I, did, I didn't actually have it done. I didn't go to Spain. In the end, um, I was at Manchester City. We, we got together with a physio and the doctor, and we wrote to the FA. Uh, and, it, and effectively, we got, a, we got a TUE or the equivalent of what TUE was at the time. Uh, and I had my injections done in London because this wasn't about enhancing my performance. This was trying to save my knee, you know, so I could actually have a normal life. Effectively. I, I retired from that injury. You know, I, I never played again after that. And I had dozens of PRP injections in that knee. So did they work to some degree, but not to the extent that it got me back to play in. But yeah, so I know 100% that there were options out there to go and get treatment if you wanted it. So that was Danny Mills, former Premier League footballer, and you're listening to The Dive on TalkSport. So I contacted the UK Anti-Doping Agency. They oversee blood doping for the FA. I had several questions 
and they replied to most of them telling me that nearly 4,000 drug tests took place in football last year, that they don't make the results public unless somebody has been found and banned from football and that yes, they do target test, it's not just random, although that also forms part of their approach. What they didn't tell me though is how much money is invested in blood doping in football by the Football Association and in what circumstances a team would be penalised if one or more of their players tested positive. The truth of the matter is that these athletes are put in these situations over and over and over again and you can see how easy it is that they get pushed into it and then someone else has already done it and someone comes in and says, well, I can give it to you now. And if you want to do it in a, in a very crude analogy, the athletes are like the guys out on the street doing the drug deals. They are not the ones benefiting from this in, in, a, in a larger sense. They are the ones who, I'm not saying they're not committing crimes, I'm not saying they're not involved, I'm not saying they shouldn't be smarter and they shouldn't be more like Danny who clearly at least did his research. But realistically, they are, they're, they're taking the easy option for a short-term game. It's the people who are milking the system for years and years and years, like some of these doctors, some of these coaches, some of these agents are, some of these teams are, putting the, the health of the athletes uh, in question, putting the health of the athletes' children in question. You shouldn't be booing Justin Gatlin. You should be booing the sport that allows this to happen again and again and again. So as we approach the end of the show, it's important that we understand, as you've made... Uh, mention yourself that the reasons that have compelled teams to take performance enhancing drugs today in football are exactly the same as they've ever been. There is pressure put on athletes to succeed from the owners, from the chairman, from the fans, from the media, uh, from teammates. There is a huge amount of money associated with the game and the need to earn it while you can mm. because you have a very short career. There is prestige attached to being successful. You're working in a world which is dominated by very strong egos, again, be it teammates or managers or chairmen or doctors, and sometimes it's seen as the only way to be successful. It's the norm. Let's hear from Danny Mills on the pressures of playing football at the highest level and those temptations that appear along the way. The pressure becomes, especially in my day, where you had to play to get your appearance money, which was sometimes double your wages, you then have to, to, to win bonuses. You know, you play four games, you double your month's wages, and then you get bonuses, win bonuses on top of that, and you've got bills to pay. And go back to when I was at Charlton, you know, in, in the early days, my first year in the Premier League, I was earning £1,200 a week, £1,500 a week. It's not a lot, in all honesty. You know, not, not when I was just 21 years old and just bought a £200,000 house at the time. So if you then said, well, look, you're not going to play this week, actually somebody comes in, not only plays that one week, you might not get back in the team for the rest of the season. So you start to say, well, hang on a minute. Will I have this injection? Will it do me any long-term harm? Yes, it might. But if I don't have it, I'm out of the team. I might lose my place in the team and I might lose half my money for the rest of the year. And it's very, very easy for people to take the moral high ground and say, I would never do that. I would never cheat. I would never take anything to enhance my performance. It's easy to say that until you're put in that situation. But if someone said to me back in the day, here you go, take this, that means that your team will win the Champions League or your team will win the World Cup and you've got a 5, 10, 20% chance of getting caught. Are you prepared to run that risk? I'd like to think I would say, no, I wouldn't take it. But I'd also like to think I'd be very, very honest and go, I tell you what, it's not an easy decision. <laughs> and I think there might be a few sleepless nights about it. I never did anything illegal. 
But did I walk right up to the line at times? Without a shadow of a doubt. Did I look to see what was the other side of the line? Without a shadow of a doubt, I did. You know, I knew there were things out there um, that I could do it if I really wanted to. You know, and there will be physios at clubs where the manager is putting them under pressure. You've got to get this player fit for me. I don't care what it takes. He needs to be fit because I need my star player or I need this, I need that. And again, it, it takes strong people to say no. That was Danny Mills, former Premier League and England fullback. The pressures are immense in top-level sport for all the, the reasons that we've already talked about. The other thing that we haven't talked about yet is that athletes already do things with their bodies that normal humans don't do. So f- f- for certain things, um, you know, you see some of these people, they, they actually get off the drugs bans because they already have, they produce naturally uh, things that you and I will never produce. Um, you know, you have athletes with weird deformities in, in bones and extra long Achilles heels and all that sort of stuff. Then if you or I get hit by an NFL linebacker, we might never get up. These guys have to get up game after game. They are already in such a foreign world and everything is down to the performance of the next game, of the next game to get your paycheck in a way that almost no other job is ever like that. To push your body as a professional athlete is an incredible dangerous pursuit anyway. I mean, how many of our friends who are professional athletes don't walk properly now or can't pick up things because their hands shake? All those sorts of things happen to them. They are already there. Then you've got an agent, a physio, a sports scientist going, I can make this easier. I can make you better. I can make you worth more money. It's the, it's the system that is corrupt. It is not the athletes. We've heard a lot from Arsene Wenger in the show. I'm going to read you one last quote from him. When they asked footballers if they would take a product that would guarantee them a gold medal or world championship, but mean that they died in the next five years, 50% say yes. If you go to amateur level and do that test, only 2% they would take it. This is The Dive on TalkSport.